and welcome back to another exciting and thought-provoking episode of The Sonophilian. This is your host, Mariam Goddard, and today we are joined by the Associate Dean for Transdisciplinary Research and Innovation at the University of Colorado Denver uh, College of Arts and Media, Theodore Edmonds. Uh, welcome, Theo. It's so great to have you with us. Hi, Miriam. I'm glad to be here today. Yeah. So, um, Theo, we're just going to you know, hop right in. Um, you refer to yourself as a cultural futurist. Can you elaborate? The cultural futurist is not someone who predicts the future. Um, I think probably the first time in my life that uh, I began thinking about myself in that way was when I read D.H. <coughs> uh, Lawrence, who wrote of what Walt Whitman one time as pioneering into the wilderness of an open life. So for the first time I ever read that, I was just really hooked in what does that mean and how might we engage in that as a path of wayfinding, as a path of place healing, as a path of research and innovation. And so that began leading me down this path of a cultural futurist. As we think about culture, we know that it's integral uh, to the definition and creation and measurement of well-being, innovation, and other things across diverse communities. And so in my life, my work, I try to bring together um, the creative industries, that would be arts and media, with the private sector, and that could be everything from advanced manufacturing to technology, uh, to co-create culturally responsive approaches to innovation and well-being. Well-being also is a very important piece how I think about things. It comes from my experience as a principal investigator with the National Science Foundation while a faculty member at the University School of Public Health. And so when we talk about a cultural futurist, it's not someone who predicts the future. I don't think anybody can do that, but what I try to do is make sense of the cultural trends in the present and then use science to model what possibilities can emerge from those trends. And I am very committed, deeply committed, to the role of the artist in the world. And so in thinking about what an artist is, I think about the artist as an analyst, someone who identifies cultural opportunities for evolving population health and well-being impact agendas for innovation uh, across the spectrum. I think about the artist as an entrepreneur, someone who develops unique value propositions from a lifetime of, of deep uh, listening and uh, paying attention to how the world is working and then trying to use that to translate that through their art. So as an entrepreneur who creates value propositions, I think artists have a big role to play in that. And then also artists as catalysts, uh, as we think about innovating and implementing projects between industries and business and population health and research and innovation, uh, someone has to be a catalyst for that. And I think that artists are a bridge uh, for uh, bringing a lot of that activity together. Very cool. Um, yeah, so you mentioned uh, it's mainly to bring together the creative industries um, with the private sector and government leaders to co-create culturally responsive approaches to innovation and well-being. I'm reading that from uh, your bio, I believe. So I thought that was really cool. And so thank you for giving me some of that background. Um, in your role at the College of Arts and Media, uh, what is the research mission that you lead and how exactly do you implement these new ways to expand the scope of the creative industries? Uh, I guess, in essence, what I'm asking is what is your strategy in encouraging people to locate their inner creativity and apply it to their everyday work? 
so I'm at a stage in my life where I, I'm not so much focused on <clears throat> encouraging people to locate their inner creativity and apply it to their everyday work. I'm fortunate at the University of Colorado Denver in the College of Arts and Media to work with an incredible array of creative professionals. And that is in film and television, that is in uh, music and entertainment industries, that's also in uh, visual arts, and that can range from uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, all the way through to some really fascinating practices that are happening that I think hold a lot of potential for really framing and operationalizing what may be considered um, a traditional outsider perspective in industries uh, that have not had that type of thinking maybe as part and parcel of their day-to-day, like like in advanced manufacturing, like in healthcare and so forth. So as we think about that, there's really three bodies of research that I'm thinking about how to deploy that type of creative activity uh, through the arts into areas that are already being measured and are already important to our national economy here in America. So one of those areas is uh, my friend Carol Graham, whose work on deaths of despair has really captured my attention. Uh, so deaths, deaths of despair in American society, it's, it's a barrier to reviving our labor, labor markets and productivity. And overall, it's jeopardizing as a nation, our well-being, health, longevity, families, communities, even our national security. And so the COVID-19 pandemic was a fundamental shock, which um, exacerbated an already growing problem of despair. And within Carol's work, she notes that there are five key critical things to coordinate and monitor in terms of uh, turning this uh, epidemic around. Uh, One is data collection. One is changing public narratives. Uh, Addressing community-wide despair as part of the future of work. New public-private sector partnerships. And also really looking at despair as a national security issue. And so within that... Uh, work. There are so many opportunities for leveraging the science of creativity, eudaimonic well-being, and other fields of science that uh, could help to bring new thinking to a really entrenched problem. So that's one area. The second area is around uh, this notion of brain capital, which is doing, um, I think, going to be getting a lot of time and attention and effort put into it over the next several years from governmental leaders across the globe. Brain capital is, it's really just measuring economic output, uh, which seems to be doing okay in America if you look at just our economic output. But what brain capital is looking at is what is the whole picture beyond just economic output? So there's work underway to answer that question. And brain capital is defined as the aggregate of knowledge and creative skills and optimal brain health that people accumulate through their lives and enable them to realize their potential as productive members of society. And so this brain capital initiative uh, really is looking at creating a brain capital index, some type of dashboard measurement uh, that can help integrate perspectives uh, on how we contextualize gross domestic product or economic output. But those perspectives are coming not from uh, the economy. They're coming from genes and environment and culture, neuroscience, brain, body, mind, and other fields. Uh, So deaths of despair, brain capital. And then the third area that I'm really trying to figure out what is the role for professional, highly uh, functioning, sophisticated thinking, creative professionals to play in. Um, 
And that is around this notion of the future of work. And what I'm seeing is uh, a, a trend in kind of what I call toxic positivity. And I know I'm not the only one that's referred to it that way. But so what what that looks like is in, in America, and I think this may hold up around the globe, only about one in three uh, people report being engaged at work. And as organizations are increasingly facing pressure to adapt to not only technological advances, but also cultural and social movements, this may be a, a problem that we um, are going to have a hard time overcoming. And so the cultures of nations and organizations are both alike in that sense and that they are each informed by their own rituals and symbols and values. Some organizational culture and employee development models tend to focus on the employee behavior as the level of change. While there are still others that cultivate kind of an employee-level psychological happiness or hedonic well-being, and while these approaches are, are not bad, they largely center on changing the individual without changing the underlying ecology of an organizational culture. And that's an ecological fallacy when it comes to how we think about organizational development because it's a limiting paradigm for those organizations who are seeking to create cultures of inclusion in an increasingly diverse, pluralist workforce like we have here in the United States. And so when you think about synthesizing the decades, uh, prior research um, around hope and trust and belonging and how those things, uh, among others, can be combined into multidimensional measurements of culture and well-being and what they can predict and tell us about how to nurture the individual well-being of employees while simultaneously bolstering the organizational culture and inclusion and innovation of an organization. These are big areas that have a lot of upside and a lot of fluid boundaries around the old mental models that we've used as shorthand for how we solution find in these areas. And so that says to me that whenever those mental models start to break down at a societal level, that's an opportunity for innovation. And I think when you think about taking artists and art historians who are already working in transdisciplinary ways and moving the needle uh, in their own field, to be able to deploy that kind of creative activity towards these problems uh, that are being measured in data and so forth, I think really has the potential to optimize and leverage the best of both worlds. All right. Well, that's really awesome. Um, you also mentioned uh, in your bio that the creative industries include film and television, music and entertainment, uh, the visual arts and media forensics. But as you know, um, the Sonophilia Foundation is all about fostering creativity and making it a tangible science for the general public, you know, in all fields, in all walks of life, uh, which includes business, entrepreneurship, um, education, journalism, mathematics, you name it. So how would you define creativity with respect to cultural innovation and healthcare? The more uh, I'm thinking about it these days, I'm not thinking about how to define creativity with respect to those things, but how to think about creativity as a form of leadership. And so when we think about leadership, um, and for me, I am very committed to and focused on the role of the artist in the world. So artist as a creative uh, creativity-based leader uh, in, in fields outside of the arts. Uh, so what does that mean for the emerging, emerging role of the artist as leader? I think creativity, uh, both in terms of novelty as well as value creation, um, holds a great 
question for us in terms of both divergent and convergent thinking processes. And so I'm not so much thinking about how to define creativity and what, and what predicts creativity, but I'm thinking about what creativity itself predicts. And so, for example, if you are, um, if you are engaged in creative activities, then stereotypes are not going to be so useful for you in novel solution finding. And so creativity then may well predict equity-based mindsets. So think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. What are those equity-based mindsets and how do they inform not the divergent process of creativity, but the convergent process? So for instance, how might a person's lived experience, so somebody who's a member of the LGBT community or a member of one or multiple uh, black, indigenous, and uh, other people of color communities, how do they think about their lived experience as they form the questions they're asking of any data set. So that thought says to me that there's opportunities for thinking about convergent value creation in ways that really depend upon and leverage diversity of all kinds to get to those uh, portfolio of answers that go beyond just kind of one convergent value set. Now, when we're talking about creativity and talking about the you know kind of traditional gatekeepers, raters of of what is or not valuable in terms of creativity. When it comes to something like pharmaceuticals, I want somebody who's a chemist who knows what they're doing and knows the history of the field and so forth in determining what is valuable or not uh, in terms of chemistry and pharmaceutical development. But that structure, I'm not sure holds up across all of society and especially maybe doesn't hold up in other parts of society that are more socio-cultural and in times when the external environments are going through such rapid changes in terms of pandemics and racial justice reckoning and the transition to the fourth industrial revolution and the digitized economy. So when those things are happening in the external environment, those change the relationships between um, societies and economics and behavior of individuals. And when those things start to change, I think that that's an opportunity for leadership to emerge that thinks about leadership in a different context. So I think creativity, for me more these days than anything, is a leadership model. Uh, you've also worked with the National Science Foundation-sponsored uh, research team of artists, data scientists, and health professionals uh, who created the Cultural Wellbeing Index, um, which I believe you mentioned earlier. Um, what more can you tell us about that endeavor? The work with the National Science Foundation started <clears throat> about four years ago, um, and it started off initially as a diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. What we were interested in, the team that I led, is how do we understand culture change management and innovation output as part of the same um, organizational strategy? Most of the time what we do with culture change management is we'll put it in terms of uh, an HR department, which at its very function, HR is a risk mitigation area. And then when we look at innovation, that is usually found in most organizations in some other part of the organization that is more aligned and uh, targeted in their activities toward economic growth or or, or innovation output. And so when you think about the two of those things, Culture change management and innovation. They both have around the same failure rate, depending upon which data you're looking at, between 50 and 70%. And that's because they're the same thing. You can't have innovation 
without culture change. You can't have culture change without some form of innovation. So what we set out to do is how do we begin putting the data bridge in place that allows us to understand how those things are functioning together from a leadership perspective. The way that we think about this work uh, was heavily informed by uh, a public health framework. So not really looking at individuals, but looking at uh, the culture of an organization, the environmental conditions of an organization, and how it's impacting different groups of individuals. After we did the systematic literature review, which was published in the Journal of Business Diversity, um, we began compiling what we believe to be a composite measure that could tell us and predict quite a lot, could predict employee retention, it could predict employee engagement, employee health, and then so ultimately the innovation capacity of organizations. What we ended up with was a measure of culture that was built on and predicated on the idea that inclusion and individual well-being are antecedent conditions for innovation output. And so we really leveraged well-being and health, public health research and empirical measurement of public health research to get to a proxy measure for inclusion. But that proxy measure for inclusion uh, was not your traditional public health approach. That proxy measure we came up with for inclusion included the constructs of hope, trust, and belonging. So hope, trust, and belonging through those combination of things with the NSF. Um, we worked and validated the measure with a multinational corporation, uh, which is one of the largest providers of non-clinical home care in the U.S., and we were able to uh, show empirically that that, that that construct of hope, trust, and belonging is predictive of employee retention, it's predictive of employee engagement, it's predictive of employee health, and then those things collectively are some of the key performance indicators that are relied upon by many organizations uh, as an indicator of organizational success and how well the organization is doing which is then uh, turned into innovation plays in most organizations. So that construct of hope, trust, and belonging formed the cultural well-being index in the work that we did. And ultimately, it was a, a holistic, inclusive, evidence-based index so we could measure the organizational culture on employee well-being and thereby have a proxy metric for inclusion and trying to understand inclusion and well-being as an innovation play within organizations instead of a risk management um, part of HR. Theo, I think it's really interesting uh, to mention this. Um, can humanity continue on the path it's on without creativity or innovative thinking? Um, and you know, tell us why you think so or why you don't think so. Creativity is always happening. Creativity is, is neither inherently uh, benevolent or malevolent. Uh, it depends upon in whose hands uh, the, the technology and the science and the mechanisms and motivations of creativity are being deployed. So if it is a, say, a political uh, leader uh, who has an interest in sparking culture wars, um, between the constituents of a certain um, state or nation. Creativity is just as present in those kinds of situations as it is in the more 
um, benevolent areas of leaders who are looking towards using using and leveraging creativity to uh, engender a, a better society and doing good in the world. So I think we have to really focus that question more on uh, as mechanisms uh, because humanity is always going to have creativity and innovation thinking. Um, how it gets used into what are the motivations, skills, and resources of different people in using that in using creativity, both the, in terms of its novelty as well as its convergent value creation, is I think the more important question. Um, and when it comes to innovative thinking, we have uh, in the Western world, I believe, done a pretty interesting thing with innovation thinking. We have claimed because of technology, because of, let's just be frank, because of the, the money that is involved with it, uh, as being the, the specific domain of technology firms in Silicon Valley, or maybe it's in you know, large medical sciences campuses or in universities, and that's where the innovation thinking is occurring. But I am originally from Appalachia, from a nine-generation southeastern Kentucky um, Coalfields family. And I can tell you this, that whether it be where I am from, which is a very poor community in southeastern Kentucky, in Appalachia, or whether it be in black communities that I have worked with across the South, uh, or whether it be in LGBT communities who, because of prejudice in society, have maybe not had the same opportunities for economic advancement as their straight counterparts. In those poor communities, there is equal, if not more, innovative thinking happening than I have ever seen in technology or big data or any of the scientific fields. We just don't call it innovation in those poor communities. And the motivations of those poor communities is not because they are trying to get a hockey stick growth on their new startup and a quick exit. They are trying to solve basic problems and challenges they're having in their life and taking care of their families, putting food on the table, keeping a roof over their heads, sending their kids to get education. And so they make use of what they have available to them. The innovation that is demonstrated in these communities is on par with innovation that is happening in big business. But for the class systems and other things like racism that we have in society, some of these same folks who are doing this innovation on the ground level uh, in communities that I'm talking about, if they had the opportunity to go on to the, to the Harvards and the Stanfords of the world, there's no doubt in my mind that they would be some of the ones that we would be talking about on the front pages of magazines. But um, they're viewed as not being innovative in the same way that others are when there's lots of dollars tied to it. So I, I, this question of innovative thinking, uh, humanity is always and has always been innovative in its thinking. It's what we call it and how we value it and how we see it. Uh, as at a systems level, I think is the more important question. And can the systems sustain themselves if they don't start understanding that? I think that's an interesting question because maybe, maybe not. Uh, we're missing an awful lot right now 
uh, by just investing in one version of a solution because the person that came up with that solution may look like the investor or be coming from a field with a credential that says that they have the best insights. And uh, just one last question, finally, um, what has your role been with the Sonophilia Foundation thus far uh, and how do you anticipate it evolving? Um, really what do you feel is the most valuable thing you can contribute and have there been any notable collaborations um, peaked with other Sonophilia members? My role with Sonophilia has uh, evolved quickly. Um, because there are so many incredibly generous uh, and brilliant people that are part of this group. Uh, it's really been a, uh, a great privilege uh, to be able to learn from and with uh, many of them. Uh, the two things that uh, I'm thinking most about in the future, maybe the three things I'm working um, with Seta and Hannah, who is, was our Sonophilia's first research um, scholar in residence on a fact book of creativity. Uh, and then also Hannah and Roger Beatty in the lab at Penn State um, and uh, the College of Arts and Media where I am at the University of Colorado Denver, we're collaborating on what will be one of the uh, potentially biggest data sets that's ever been attempted. Um, to be collected that looks at the relationship between culture, well-being, and creativity and how a person's identity, and that's gender, gender expression, sexual orientation, age, job role, uh, on down the line, ethnicity, uh, how a cultural identity mediates the relationship between culture, well-being, and creativity across all STEAM plus business plus human services categories. So I think those kinds of data collection sets that really allow us to understand how this cultural identity question as part of the innovation equation in, in what it means for well-being and creativity uh, has tremendous applications that range from um, biomedical research to uh, how we think about designing uh, the future of healthcare and the future of work and the future of education uh, in our world. So I'm, I'm very excited about, about that. And then uh, also working with SETA on the Creativity Congress that's going to be in Salzburg next spring, and then pulling through some of the notes of that, uh, of that work uh, through to the Future of Creativity Global Summit that we are also planning in Denver uh, in July of 2022. It's an invitational uh, summit that will invite uh, five groups, scientists, artists, business leaders, STEM professionals, and physicians in healthcare uh, to Denver for a three-day uh, convening. We'll share out the initial data cohort uh, collection that we've been doing from this uh, uh, project I mentioned with Penn State just a moment ago, and then also splitting into three transdisciplinary groups that uh, looks at the application of creativity science and what we've learned through the data to the future of work, the future of healthcare, and the future of education. So all of those things have been made possible uh, through relationships with Sonophilia. Um, the other, uh, and I'll end on, on this note, is uh, uh, with Angus Cameron and, his, and Kathleen um, on their um, project called Udibu, which is a longitudinal study of teaching a creativity curriculum to young people and what 
it tells us in the data over the course of their educational career. And again, that's also in partnership with the College of Arts and Media here at the University of Colorado Denver. So all of those have been made possible um, in, in some shape, form, or fashion because of the incredible relationships and, and intellectual capital and, and generosity of spirit uh, from my fellow Sonophilians. <laughs>